1: After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on.
0: Thanks be God. Uh, let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, what a story. What a story you have given to us. Would you give us ears this morning to hear all that you have for us? I mean, some of us, we've heard, we've heard this story so many times that we have just grown numb to it. And others of us, maybe this is the very first time that we've heard of it. We're trying to figure out what does this actually mean? Would you give all of us ears to hear this morning? no matter where we are on the spectrum of belief, convinced, unconvinced, somewhere in between, having once believed, trying to figure out if we could ever believe these things again, whether we come into this room feeling like we've kind of got life under control and everything is going the way that we want, or whether we feel like our life is spiraling and we are just looking for some semblance of hope, would you come and meet us right now through this story in your Word, by your Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can take your seats. Uh, well, let me welcome you once again. Good morning. My name is Brent, and if I haven't met you yet, I'm the, the pastor here at, at Res Oakland. Um, this morning, we're actually, if you are visiting, if this is your first time, you've come on a good morning, we're actually picking back up on a series that we, uh, we, we stopped all the way back uh, right before Easter, actually. We were going through a series in the Gospel of Luke, and for the next couple months, we're going to be picking back up and finishing that series. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to be looking at the parables of Jesus as they're recorded in Luke's Gospels. A lot of parables in the Gospel of Luke. Let me just say a quick word about parables. Parables are stories, and uh, when you read the Gospels, what you find is this, is very interesting, is that parables were Jesus' main way of teaching, His primary way of teaching. Now, we believe, Christians believe, that Jesus is more than just a teacher. We believe that he is the Savior who's come to rescue us, who's come to reveal the truth of who God is to us. Jesus, while he is more than just a teacher, he is perhaps the greatest teacher who ever lived. Which begs the question why did he teach in parables? Parables are not often what they seem. They're they're very simple stories. Jesus tells stories about a farmer who sows some seed or a woman who loses a coin or a man who finds his great treasure. They they are simple stories but their, their truths are often profound and hidden. The point is not always obvious at first read. One person has said this. They said, you know, parables are like they're like hard candy. You can't just bite down on them. You have to kind of suck at them, suck on them, to really get at what they're, what they're about. It's not always obvious, which begs another question. If Jesus came to reveal to us the truth of who God is, why does he pick his main method of teaching as something which hides and conceals and isn't always obvious? It's a little interesting, isn't it? It's like, just say it, Jesus. Just say what you mean. This is what my wife says to me often. Just say what you mean. Some of you probably think that in my sermon sometimes. Just say what you mean. (laughs) Emily Dickinson, in one of her poems, she writes this. She says, tell all the truth, but tell it slant success and circuit lies, too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. She's saying the truth is, it's too bright for us. And then she says this, so the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. Now what she's saying is this, is that if you just shove truth into our faces, it doesn't really do anything. It doesn't really change us. This is why we keep eating it in and out. We know it's terrible for us, but we keep going back. I was there last night, double-double animal style, fantastic. See, but if truth can be delivered slant, this is what Dickinson is saying, she's saying if truth can be delivered slant through a side door, if it can catch us while our defenses are down, if it can get to your heart and not just your head if it can capture your imagination and not just your intellect, then it can actually dazzle you. It can become not just information in your head, but but real transformation in your life. See, Jesus, think about this. Jesus could have said, love your neighbor, and he did say that. But he could have just said, love your neighbor, but instead he told a story about a man who fell into a ditch, and another man who rescued him. And he could have said, be generous. But he told a story about a man who hoarded all of his money and lost his life. And he could have said, God loves you no matter what. But instead, he told a story about a father with two sons. That's our story for today, and that's the truth that we're gonna be looking at in it. I mean, this is probably the most famous story that Jesus ever told, and it contains the truth that is probably the most hard to believe, the most profound, actually. God loves you. But it's also the truth that can actually change your life. I mean, if you really grasp the love of God, it will dazzle you unlike anything. I don't have a lot of scripture memorized. But one verse I do have memorized is 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. How great is the love. The, the literal translation there is, from what country? John is not, he's not just talking about the, the quantity of God's love. He's not just talking about how much God loves us. It's talking about the quality of God's love. It is saying the love of God is from a totally different world. It is unlike any other love. You might might taste of it in this world. You might get glimpses of it. There might be fleeting experiences. But the love of God is unlike anything. And you say, well, how so? Well, I got a sermon for you this morning. I got a sermon outline for you. Alright? Three things we're going to look at this morning. That the love of God, it is patient and persistent. Number one. Number two, it is realistic and rejoicing. And number three, it is free and it is costly. Let me say this again. It's patient and persistent. It's realistic yet rejoicing. And it is free yet costly. So first, it's patient and persistent. First, let's talk about the patience. Jesus begins this story by telling us that this younger son goes to the father and says, Give me my share of the estate. This is like my children on Christmas morning when they say, Where are my presents? And it is actually hard to capture how insulting and shameful this would have been for a first century father. Because, you know, think about this this is a son. Sons, sons get their father's estate. Everything his dad had was coming to him. You know when it was coming to him? When his dad died. And So what this son is saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead already. I, I, I don't want you, but I do want your things. And you might think, well, that sounds really terrible, but let me ask you a question. Have you ever had that posture towards God? Have you ever found yourself wanting things from God more than you actually want God. Think about your prayer life. Think about all of the things that we ask God for. You say, wait a minute, I, aren't I, isn't that what prayer is? I'm supposed to ask God for things? Absolutely. The Bible talks about that all the time. But you know what else it says? It says that prayer is also meant to be about you praising God and proclaiming back to God who he is and his goodness and his kindness and his wonder and his glory. It's about you delighting in him. It's about you being with him. It's about the thing that you want from him more than anything else is him. So we do this all the time. Give me my share of the estate. And look how patient this father is in response to this demand. Verse 12, so he divided his property between them. Now the word property there is the word for bios. It's the word bios. It means life. It's where we get the word biology from. So in the ancient world, your property was your life. It was your livelihood. And so what everyone would have been expecting as Jesus was telling this story is that, you know, any first century father, their response to this demand would have been to to beat their son, to scold them, to even disown them. And what does this father do? He tears his life apart. Literally, he tears his life apart. And he gives his son what he's asking. So patient. The patience of God. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, there's this, it's kind of this famous chapter on love in the New Testament. A lot of people want this read at their wedding, and I say, you, you don't want this read at your wedding. Because it's just going to make you feel really bad. And one of the, you know, it has this whole list of what love is, and one of the things it says is, love is patient. And we just kind of read right past that. Oh, love is patient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what this is saying is that love means in the face of insult, in the face of shame, in the face of even scorn, when people hurt you, love is actually responding with kindness and mercy, just like, just like the Father does in this passage. Now, what does the Son re- do in response to the Father's patience? It says that he set off for a distant country. In other words, he was like, I'm going to get as far away from my dad as I can. And then the text says that he squandered his wealth in wild living. That means that he blew every penny. He made a total wreck of his life. He ends up living and eating with pigs until one day he is so miserable and he decides the only choice he has left is to go home. Now, this is where we see the persistence of God's love. One of my favorite verses phrases in in the whole Bible is verse 20. It says that but while he was still a long way off his father saw him. You know the only way you see someone who's far away is if you're looking for them. And what Jesus is saying is this is what God is like. God is like this father who every day he went and he stood on his porch And he looked for his son until one day he sees him. He sees him coming down the road. Now, this is the place he sees him returning. He sees him coming home after who knows how long it's been, you know, away. Jesus doesn't really tell us. Now, this is where some of you are in this room right now. Some of you, you are reengaging with faith for the first time in a very long time. You, you have been, you've been pushing God to the periphery of your life for years. And for some of you, it's even been decades. It's been decades since you have been in church. You have sought to get as far away from God as possible. That's why you moved to the Bay Area, right? That's why you left Nebraska and you came here. Because you thought, I'm going to get as far away as I can. And you've been running And now you're coming back, you're re-engaging, and the question you're asking is, how is God going to respond? And Jesus tells you exactly how God responds in this passage. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. John Perkins, who's a great civil rights activist and Christian minister, he, he writes in his book, Let Justice Roll Down, about this parable, this story, and how it changed his life. His, his mom died when he was only seven months old, and his dad abandoned him. He didn't see his dad again until four years later. And one night his dad showed up, and he writes about it this way. He says, he arrived late one Friday night. He woke me up and I saw him in the glow of the lamp. He hugged me in strong arms and he talked to me. My daddy, the joy of belonging, of being loved, was almost more than my heart could hold. The next day when he told me he was leaving, there was only one thing on my mind. I was going with him. I saw he was heading toward town and I started following him. My dad turned and saw me following and he said, go back, go back. The way he said it sounded strange, like he was confused. I kept following him. He turned around and whooped me with a switch from a tree. Please, daddy, take me with you. Don't leave me alone again. A strange look was on his face. I reached toward him and wanted to run to him, but I was afraid, because he still held that switch. All I could do was stand there and cry. He whooped me again. Just then, my auntie came and took me by the hand and dragged me away. I looked back once, but he was already gone. And with him went my newfound joy and belonging, in being loved, in being somebody for just a little while. And then he says this, years would pass before I would know this joy again. That need for relationship was a weight that I carried, a need that remained unmet in me much of the rest of my life until I realized that God the Father, instead of yelling, go back, came running towards me, just like the Son in Luke 15. This story says, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter how bad it has gotten in your life, God is not simply waiting from a distance, willing to take you back in. No, he is running towards you. There is always more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. Always. This passage says, it says that the love of God, it is both patient and it is persistent. It's patient because God says, look, I know there are times in your life where you're going to reject me, you're going to run from me, and you're going to use me to get things that you want. But it is persistent because God says, Even when you reject me, I will never reject you. Even when you run away from me, I will always run towards you. And even when you stop looking for me, I'm going to be standing on that porch looking for you. Even when I am far from your heart, you will always be near to my heart. The love of God. It is patient and it is persistent and it gets even better than that. It is realistic and it's rejoicing. What do I mean by realistic? I mean that the love of God for you is not idealistic. You know, God does not love some idealized version of you. No, God loves the real you. He doesn't love the future perfect you. He loves the present you in all of your mess. Think about the conditions of this son when he came home. He had been living and eating with pigs. He hasn't showered. He hasn't cleaned his life up. Think about how terrible he smelled. Think about how, how bad he looked. Think about the visible shame. You know, when you make just decades of bad decisions, it actually, you know this, it's, you're, you start to look weathered. Think about how, how different he must have looked coming home, I mean, there, th- this was his lowest point. He, he didn't get his life together and say, well, now, okay, now I, you know, I look like, just like I did when I left. Now I can go back. No, he went home at his lowest point. There was no hiding any of it. The father saw all of it, and yet he still ran. Now, if we're honest, it terrifies us to think that anyone. Would see us and know us with that degree of vulnerability, that degree of intimacy. Our R. A. Dickey was—he was a pitcher in uh, the major leagues. Uh, pretty recently, actually, he was—he was sexually abused as a child, and the shame—it was so crushing for him that he kept—he kept this secret hidden for 23 years. 23 years, he told not a single person, not his family, not his closest friends. He eventually got married. He didn't even tell his wife. And and he, he said this, he said, it had been locked away for 23 years, not only with my friends, but with my wife, who didn't know the darkest things about me. I had kind of conned her into marrying me, which is a tough admission. I loved her dearly, So I projected who I wanted to be, but I would never let her inside because I always feared if someone knew the real me, they would run the other way. And you know, you don't have to have a story like R.A. Dickey or this prodigal son to have experienced that. I mean, maybe you do, maybe maybe you have a similar story to R.A. Dickey. Maybe terrible, harmful, Violent things were done to you. And you have told no one. And it has just marked your life. You know, or maybe you are like this prodigal and you've been running from God and it has led to a string of bad decisions and lots of dark secrets that you don't want anybody in your life to know about. Or maybe, maybe your running from God has been much more subtle much more covered up, much more polished, much more internal than external. But regardless of where you are, there is something in all of us that says, if people really knew me, would they love me? You know, if, if, if they knew the things that I have said, if they knew the things that I've sought, if they knew my anger, if they knew my lust, if they knew my greed, if they knew my anxiety, if they knew my obsession with myself, we are so afraid that if we are fully known, we will not be fully loved. And this story is saying that there is nothing about you that God does not know or God does not see. He sees the whole truth about you, and he loves you. It is so realistic. But it is also rejoicing. What do I mean by rejoicing? Most of us think the fact that God loves us means God just kind of tolerates us. You know, he sees kind of all these dark parts of us. And he just kind of, he just puts up with us. I mean, that's that's how this younger son is trying to come back. Do you see this? He wants to come back as a servant. And this is this is how we are. We think, well, you know, maybe God will just kind of let me live in the barn. But like take me all the way in. We we think that God sees the truth about us and He's and you know He He kind of thinks something like, Well, you know, it's not ideal, but I'm God. This is what I do, you know. I love people. That's my job. And, and I, I mean, look at this. This is not, this is nothing like this father in this passage. What does he do when, his, when he sees his son, when he runs to him? He kisses him. He hugs him. And then he throws a party for him. Verse 22, the father said to his servants, quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. You know, the best robe, you know whose robe that was? The father's robe. The, the, the fattened calf, I mean, this is, this is as good as it got in terms of meat in the ancient Near East. This was the best meat possible. And who is Jesus saying that this father does this for? He's saying he does it for broken, messy people who come stumbling up the road hoping that God will just take them back in as a servant. You know, if you, if you turn all the way back to the very beginning of, of chapter 15, which this story is in, what you find is this. Jesus, he's accused of welcoming sinners. And eating with them and that's what prompts him to tell this story people say wait a minute this guy proclaims to be the son of god he's 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 religious he's holy but he's welcoming sinners and eat with them and and then jesus tells this story you know what jesus is saying he's saying i don't just eat with sinners i throw parties for them i don't just tolerate sinners i hug them and I kiss them and I rejoice over them. I don't just love them, I like them. I don't wonder if you've ever really believed that. That God actually likes you, that He actually enjoys your presence, that He doesn't just tolerate you. So, that just, that just feels too hard to believe, Pastor. Listen to Jesus' own words in John chapter 17. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me. Do you you know how different our lives would be if we believed this? If we believe that God felt this way about us, if we believe that he actually rejoiced over us and embraced us like this? Let me ask you a question. Could bitterness towards another person remain in your heart if you believe this? Could you, could you hold on to grudges if you believe this? Could, could, could worry and anxiety and fear remain in your life if you believe this? What would happen to your fears? If you believed your fears about the future, if you believe that the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who controls all things and who holds your life in his hands, had his affections set on you. Or how about envy? I mean, how could you be envious of anyone else in this world when God looks at you and says, You are my treasure? How how free would you be if you believed that God loved you like this? This is actually what changes us. And you might be thinking, well, I want to believe that, but how is it possible? And that's actually the last point. But the love of God, it it is free and costly. Now, this story, here's what's interesting. This story is often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. But notice that the first thing Jesus says when he tells this story is he says, there was a man who had two sons. This is not just about one son. We could spend a whole sermon on this. In fact, it would probably be more accurate to call this the parable of the older brother. That's not how we think of it. But if you turn all the way back, To the beginning of this chapter, I mentioned this earlier, in verses 1 and 2, the whole thing that triggers Jesus telling this story, it is Jesus' audience. You know who it is? It's the Pharisees and the religious leaders. It's the people who are religious, who are moral, who are good, who pray, who read their Bible, who obey God, who do all the right things, who are just like this older brother, and they are the ones who say we cannot believe this man eats with sinners and welcomes them that's what prompts the story now maybe that's may, maybe you're like this older brother maybe you relate to him more than you relate to the younger brother you don't have decades of kind of running from home running from god making a wreck of your life you've made pretty good decisions Life feels pretty manageable, and friends, if that is you, then there is good news for you in this passage and there's actually a warning for you. And the good news is this, the good news is that God's love for you is both patient and persistent. Do you see this, that in verse 28, the father runs out to the older brother? They're at the party. He realizes someone is missing. His oldest son is not there, and so what does he do? He goes out to him. He, listen to this. Jesus pursues self-righteous religious people just as much as he pursues broken down immoral people. But here's the warning. The warning is this. There is one son who's not in the party at the end of this story. You know who it is? It's not the bad one. It's the good one. It's not the one you would expect. It's the one that you least expect. There are two lost sons in this story. There are two sons who are separated from the father. And in the end, only one comes into the party. And why doesn't he come in? That's the question. Why does he not come in? Verse 29. He answered his father, Look. Now, I was never a good start when I was a kid with my dad. <laughs> Conversation never went well. Billy Webster, you just didn't, you didn't say the word look to Billy Webster. All these years, I have been slaving for you. And never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The key word here is slaving. He sees himself as a slave, not as a child. He is saying, look at everything I have done for you. Look how good I have done. He's not exaggerating. You owe me. He has tried to do everything right. And guess what? That is what has separated him from the Father. He is missing out on the love of God. Hear this, friend. Not in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. You can spend your whole life in church and be very far from God. In fact what i've seen in 15 years of ministry is that people come into this place to hide there are two ways to relate to god either as a slave or a child a slave has to earn their place in the family and a child is given their place in the family Religion says I have to earn God's love. I have to work for it. I have to do all of these things and then God will accept me. I have to earn it. The gospel says all you can do is receive it. One is based on how you live and the other is a free gift that comes to you irrespective of how you live. It comes to you by sheer grace. The love of God The love of God, it is totally free and it is utterly costly. It's costly. Uh, Rembrandt has a very famous painting of this parable in Luke 15. The parable of the older brother. And uh, I have this painting actually, um, not the original in my office up here, but you know, it's right up there in that room. Um, uh, I have it, I have it in my office and I, I love this, I love this painting. Um, the original actually, uh, if you didn't know this, the original is hanging in the, I don't even know how to say this, the Hermitage Museum. We'd probably say the Hermitage in, this, in South Carolina, the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. Now, Henry Nowen, who is, a, he was a great Catholic writer. He describes the time that he actually went to this museum and he sat in front of this painting, Rembrandt's painting of the, of the Prodigal Son for hours. And he just stared at it. And he said that uh, over the course of several hours, just, just looking at this painting, something occurred to him, and he writes this, He says, he says, "This parable was a living depiction of Jesus' own life. What a mystery." that Jesus himself became a prodigal son for our sakes. He left the house, he left the house of his heavenly father. He went to a foreign country. He gave away all that he had and he returned through a cross to his father's home. He did all of this, not as a rebellious son, but as the obedient son sent out to bring home all the lost children of God. Jesus is the prodigal son, says Nowen, who gave away everything the father had entrusted to him, not for his own sake, but for ours, so that you and I could be with him and become like him and return with him to his father's home. Jesus did not just tell us this story. He lived it. And he demonstrated his love for you by dying for you. Friends, the Christian story, the Christian gospel, this, this table, it says that for God to love you, it costs you nothing. It's free to you. But it cost him everything. And God looked at that cost. And you know what He decided? that it was well worth it. This table tells us that he ran to a cross so that he can run to you, so that he can throw his arms around you and hug you and kiss you and rejoice over you and throw a party for you and call you his own and invite you to this table. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us. Do you know this love? Have you received it? If not, you can today. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, what love we find at this table and in this meal and at the cross and all because of your Son, all because of the cost he was willing to pay. Would you take this little wafer and this little cup and might we be dazzled by it this morning? Help this to not just be some sort of intellectual truth that we know, but may it go straight to our hearts that it might change our lives. In Christ's name, amen.